Thanks for joining us today to hear our latest Hope Central podcast. We trust this message will help you know more about Jesus and inspire you to be more like Him. good to see you all this morning. I got a word to share uh, along our theme that we've been talking about this year, which is we've been really looking into the the last three parables that Jesus told before the end, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension to heaven. Those three parables I think are really important because they describe to us kind of what he wants his church to be like, what his people are supposed to be like at his return. And we've just, we kind of boiled those things, those three things down to a passion for Jesus a a passion for fruitfulness, and a compassion for other people. And today we're back on the topic of being uh, passionate for Jesus. And I just wanted to refer you to this scripture in 1 Peter. This is one of those painful scriptures that you read and go, um. Here's how it goes. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in his flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, don't you love the last bit of that? You know, to live your life for the will of God? Wouldn't it be great? Who here doesn't want, or that's a reverse question. Don't we just want to live the will of God? Like, does everybody agree that the God's will for your life is probably better than your will for your life? Certainly better than your mother's will for your life, better than someone else's will. It's, God's will for your life is so beautiful, if only we could. But he says there's this conflict, and the conflict is within us. It's this passion, right? This, this passion that we have for our own desires, for our own will to be done, for the things that we like, the things that we prefer, and they're constantly around us. It's like we're caught in this soup of pushing us against the will of God and towards our own desires. And so it's a struggle. And that struggle is reflected in that that picture of suffering. So do we want to live for my desires or do I want to live for the will of God? And the consequence of choosing to live for the will of God is always suffering. But what kind of suffering? And is it something we're supposed to be rejoicing in, something we're supposed to celebrate, or something as an indication that things are actually going well? I would love to preach the messages where everything is rosy, everything is perfect, and everything is sunshine every day. Serve Jesus, and you get your lunch packed in the morning, and you get green lights all the way to life, and then when you come home, your wife, your husband greets you with flowers and celebration. This is not that message. Well, it is that message, but home is not here. Home is there. And you will eventually get home, and those lights will be green, and lunch will be packed. But it won't be in this restaurant. It won't be in this house. It will be in your eternal home. And so I want to talk to us today about this that's been really challenging me. How is my passion for Jesus, and how is it reflected? You see, every time you want to do something that's better, something that's right, you always encounter suffering. If you, if you live your life too much pleasing other people, that's probably because there's something in you that feels better when you please other people. And if you ever make a decision, listen, I've got to stop pleasing other people and do the right thing, there's going to be suffering. People are going to be upset. They'll be angry. You'll probably feel bad for a while. Let's suppose you have an addiction to something that you really, you really want. The moment you decide, I shouldn't be doing that, I shouldn't be having that, I shouldn't be taking that, 
there's going to be suffering. Your body will cry out. It'll scream at you. I want this. I just made a decision the other day that I'm going to have a lot less sugar in my diet. I didn't even experience sugar withdrawals, and already my body is going, please help me. <laughs> I, I, it's almost like in my mind I'm anticipating the withdrawal from sugar. I'm already counting the cost. I open up the fridge, I see things. Why can't I have you? And I'm saying to myself, it's been two hours. How, how pathetic are you? You're even imagining how bad your life is going to be without that. I'm a bit pathetic like that, are you? So, I want to tell you about the soup that you swim in. I want to tell you about the religion of Australia, the religion of all Western nations. Um, it, Western culture is dominated by what is now called secular humanism that came from what has been labeled the Enlightenment. Although, if you know anything about history, there wasn't much enlightening that happened during the Enlightenment. And, of course, it, if you say it's enlightened, then it says that what was before was dark, and so they called those the Dark Ages, although there wasn't anything dark about the Dark Ages. <laughs> and because during the Dark Ages was when we invented universities. So apparently that's what dark. Uh, so like there's all kinds of things about history that's been told to us in the wrong way and it's used terms that confuse us. And this idea of secular humanism, we all, we all like, oh, it's the secular, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of right. We don't, we don't bring God into things, we rationalize and we're really smart about that. And, but the other word in there is humanism. And what humanism says is that there are, man is now at the center of reality. Mankind is at the center. Now, the inference is then that it's not just mankind, it's you. It's individual human beings. And the three major ideas of the Enlightenment was reason, individualism, and skepticism. And I don't intend to make this a long lecture on culture. But those three ideas of reason, individualism, and skepticism have borne in our culture a kind of belief system, because this is actually about belief. It's about faith. Even though you can, see, you can take God completely out of the equation, it's still about faith. It's still about what you believe. Do you believe that you have the capacity to reason all truth? Do you have the capacity to be the individual that gets their desires met? Do you have the capacity? Are you the one that you believe in can figure out the truth from the lies? So Rene Descartes, I think, um, summarized that really well. Maybe you have heard this quote before. I think, therefore, I am. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. I think, therefore, I am is one of the hallmarks of the Enlightenment, so-called, because it, 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 what he does, Rene, um, my good friend Rene, um, <clears throat> describes the, what are the byproducts of this way of thinking, and that is existence, life, truth, reality, it's what I think it is. It's, it's relative to me. And then uh, even our own existence is determined by us. I think, therefore, I am. The Bible is very much against this idea, because the great I am is not you, right? The great I am is not me. The great I am is somebody who is far outside that, and that great I am has something else to say that is contrary to what you think, contrary to what you believe even. And that great I am needs to be respected. But man in our culture, in fact, if you are raised in the Western world, this is the way you have been trained to think from infancy, is that 
With you at the center, it's what you think, what you want, and what you choose to doubt. You know the byproduct of that is? Belief in Jesus Christ and devotion to him in the West is in a massive decline. You know, in the Australian census from 2016 to 2021, that census that you fill out every five years, in that sentence it showed that belief or showing some sort of faith in Christianity has dropped by 9% in five years in Australia. It's all because of this kind of thinking that people are making up their own decisions, they're making up their own beliefs, they're making up their own truths, and they are walking away from the revealed truth of God in Scripture. So, Peter writes to all of us in the Western world and says these very difficult words. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Whereas whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There is a way of thinking that you have to arm yourself with. Most people, when they think they're going to go to battle in life, that they need to bring a bunch of resources, right? Like if you were going to go to war and you were going to pick up something that helped you succeed in war, these days it would probably be some sort of you know, armor or some sort of a weapon or a gun, all of these things that we're now shipping to Ukraine so that they can battle against the Russians, all of this armaments that helps them get the victory. But in, in truth, the armament that we need in life is a way of thinking, a way of believing, not things that we have that will help us survive. And you know what the thing that Christ kept with him in the armament? It was a willingness to suffer. So, is God at your center? Is love for Jesus what motivates your life? Uh, Ask yourself that question, please. I'm asking you rhetorically, but ask yourself that question. Is God at your center? And is love for Jesus what motivates your life? It's a giant challenge to me whenever I consider that question because I would often answer that question, no. Is God at my center? Well, mostly. And is love for Jesus what motivates your life? Yes, constantly, but not always. And there is a gap between the way that Christ has called me to live and the faith that he's called me to to show and the reality in which I'm living. But to choose to follow Jesus and to make him the most important is going to come with consequences. In Matthew 25, we read the parable of the virgins. Now, I'm going to read this to you. And if you've read this parable before, um, can I just ask you to pretend like you've never heard it before? Yeah, that's not possible. But it's a strange story. Imagine if you, if you were, were Jesus and you had three final stories to tell before your departure, three, three pictures to draw to, so that humanity would put them on the fridge of life and look at them every morning. If you had three stories to tell, is this a story that you'd tell? But this is a very interesting, captivating kind of story, and it doesn't end in a very good way. And here's how Jesus tells the story. He says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. That's sort of like the summary of it. There are ten of them, 
and they are all going, they're all hoping to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But when the wise took, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! There's an exclamation mark in mine, so that's why I did that. <laughs> then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then listen to this last verse. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's, it's like Jesus knows it's not easy to put our faith in him and follow him for the whole journey, isn't it? I mean, we're all so excited. Remember the day you got saved? I, mean, I don't know if you remember, but the day that I got saved, I felt my life is so my life was so transformed in that moment, and I was in the middle of nowhere cutting up firewood with a chainsaw, and I had this, I had been praying for months to understand who Jesus was and just could not grasp it, and the moment that I was there with my saw, cutting that saw, and that log was falling off, I, I re just remembered that I had this flash of insight that I went, Jesus is my Savior, and I just shut the saw off halfway through the log, and I got down on my knees, and I just prayed, Jesus, I don't know how, but please come. And my life, my heart that day was changed. I was 16 years old. And I'll tell you, you could have burned down the entire forest around me, and I wouldn't have noticed. And everything in my life just suddenly went from one side to the other, and I just wanted him more than anything. And it drained and you go to school, and you go through life, and you go through temptations, and you go through trials, and you go through loves, and you go through hates, and you go through pains, and you go through life, and it dwindles. And it turned out there was not enough oil for that lamp. And so Jesus says, the wise take oil with them. They always stay topped up. And if you don't stay topped up, there is a very real chance that the love that you once had for God will dwindle and be lost. It'll be consumed, and there won't be anything there. And then the moment that you need it, it's not there. When Jesus comes back, and he's like, he's here! And you're just off doing your own thing. And someone says, hey, come on, he's here! Really? Oh, okay, well, all right. Trim my lamp, he's here. But it was too late for them. It's a story of passion. A passion that could be as measured in this story as too little, too late. You didn't have enough passion. And you left it too late to do something about it. How am I going so far? 
stirring your, stirring your soul. Do I sound interesting? I hope I'm not at all entertaining. I, I, I hope right now you're feeling the weight of Jesus' concern for your soul so that you stay in love with the only one who is worthy of your love until the day he comes back again. Now, hang on a second. Hold on there, Joe. Come on now. Isn't Christianity all about what God does for me? I mean, come on now. I've been hearing these sermons since I was a child. I've been hearing about Jesus and about God and about how much he loves me. Come on. He loves me. He chases me. Don't you know, Joe, the story of the 99 and the one sheep? Don't you know, Joe, that there was a hundred sheep and when one of those sheepies got lost, like me, that God dropped everything and he ran after me and picked me up and I'm the sheep that Jesus just chases down because he loves me so much. So when you talk to me about this, I need to chase him stuff, I'm sorry, Pastor Joe. That's a false gospel. Because he's supposed to take care of my desires. And heal all of my pains. And when you bring up the suffering stuff, I'm going to rebuke you in the name of the Lord. Because I've seen the TV show Evangelist Guy. And he told me that God loves me and he wants nothing but perfection for my life. And I should be happy and drive on streets of gold here, not there. And I should have my cake and eat it and not have diabetes. <laughs> you see, that there is a version of, of Christianity that you hear all of the time because it's based on secular humanism. It's based on the religion of this culture, of this time, of this land, of this world that says it's all about you. That is a false gospel because that's a false God. And so Jesus is not actually going to back that up. And I'm sorry, I'm going to offend you to the core. If you think, yeah. It's all actually about him and not about you. But I'll, I'll tell you this. He loves you. He loves you. And if you make it about him, you'll experience more of that love. And if you make it about you, you'll experience less. So there's this story in the Song of Solomon. and I don't want to go into too much detail, but it's a romance story. And it's about the relationship that people have with God. And at one point, at the early part of the story, God's doing all the chasing. God's doing all of the reaching. God's doing all the loving, and the, the woman is running away because she, she, she's getting overwhelmed. But she's giving in to him because he's so amazing and so wonderful. So when they kind of get betrothed, she goes home to her own house, and there's this little event. It says, uh, she, that it should be colon, like, I slept. That is the she is speaking. I slept. But my heart was awake. A sound my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my darling, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and the locks with the drop of the night. Do you feel the Romeo and Juliet thematic stuff coming out here? She, 
at night, he, he is so in love with her that he just can't wait. He can't make it through the night. So he's come to see her. And he's knocking at the door. And she's, but I put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them? You know, like, and if you live in a world where there's not often flooring in houses, and you've just gone to bed and washed your feet, you got to get up, you're going to get your feet dirty again. And he's there knocking, and you're like, well, but my feet. Are you even considering my feet? I have to wash them again. And there's that. My beloved puts his hand on the latch, and my heart thrilled me. Ah, oh, no, I hear him. I'll get up. I arose and opened to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers was flowing liquid myrrh on the handles of the boat. bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. And my soul failed me when he spoke, and I sought him, but, he, but I found him not, and I called, but he gave no answer. You see, she gets up, and she, she recognizes in the bolt of the door that when she opens the bolt of the door, there's his smell on it. His perfume is on the board. Nothing like memory in your smell, is there? It comes back to her. Oh, I wish I had, but he's gone because she's missed her moment because she played hard to get. Are you guys familiar with these movies? <laughs> the Runaway Bride. There seems to be like a constant repetition of that theme, right? Where somebody's due to be married and for some reason the, the bride has cold feet. Oh, I don't know if I want to be committed to him. He's a bit of a scoundrel. He's a bit of a rogue. He's a bit of a blah. And so she wants to go and run away and get away from this imposing obligation to be married to this person. And I think that in that, there is actually something in the teaching of secular humanism, which basically says, we're always measuring. What am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of this? Is this going to work for me? I don't know if I want in this marriage because what about me? Am I going to marry you? What do I get? You better be good to me all the time. You better be just what I want. You'd be perfect husband, perfect wife. If you're not perfect, then I'm just going to walk away because I'm going to go, what? It's all really about me. Why aren't you like I want you to be? And so they run away. They're off in the car, they're running away. My, one of my least favorite movie series, because I've seen it so often, not because it's not brilliant and lovely, and there is no place called Genovia, but <laughs> I, was, I raised daughters on the diet of Princess Diaries. And uh, if you didn't have to go through that, God bless you. But I did. And it always offended me that this girl who somehow didn't know she was royalty and has to take on this obligation of being the queen, and she's secretly a princess, and about how imposed she is about having to do all of these things that she just doesn't want to do. I don't want to act like that. I don't want to dress like that. I don't want to go there. What? You don't want to live in a mansion and have servants? Look at this. This. Sorry. My children loved it. But it really is all about entitlement, isn't it? Why am I not getting what I want in life? Why isn't it the way that I want it to be? Why do I have to have all of these impositions placed on me just because I'm royalty? Well, God bless you, Christian daughter and son. You're royalty. And there's obligations that come when you're married to Jesus. And so don't be that runaway bride that goes, this isn't the way I wanted it. I'm going to hit the trail. Okay. 
I was touched a couple of weeks ago. I was listening to an interview with Eugene Peterson's son. If you don't know Eugene Peterson, he's the guy who wrote the message translation of the Bible, which is a Bible that many people use devotionally. He's, he, but he's written many, many books to pastors, and he's a really, really good author. And he passed away some years ago, and his son was being interviewed. And in the interview, they, uh, they were asking his son um, about some moment that in his life that really kind of revealed to his struggle as a person. And, and his son told this story about how Eugene Peterson was invited by a church, churches in South America, to come to their very big annual conference and he was to speak in front of 40,000 people at this conference. Now, you're probably not in my world. Let me tell you a little bit of my world. People who are public speakers and preachers of the Word of God, we love it when people love us. And when people say to us, you are so amazing, preacher, teacher, <laughs> come and speak to 40,000 people. Do you know what happens to a person like me? I mean, you might go, oh my goodness, get me off that stage. But for me, it would be like a resounding endorsement of years of preaching. It would be a huge affirmation to say, yes, Joe, you're as amazing as you always hoped you'd be. And so Eugene was speaking to his son, and his son said to him, Dad, why wouldn't you go? Like, what an opportunity to serve those people and share what you've learned and Explain the, the scriptures to these people. And he said, son, you don't understand. He said, what don't I understand, dad? And Eugene said this, I'm concerned for my soul. Because what you don't know is that Eugene Peterson, as much as he was devoted to Christ, also had an ego and also had a desire to be important and also had a desire to be famous and also had a desire to win. And when he got that opportunity, it was like a temptation for him to do something because it made him successful. And he said, if I go and do that, I'm concerned for my soul because I'll like it. I'll like the praise. I'll like the glory. And when I heard that, I went, Whew. I don't want to be that either. But can I ask you this? What do you say no to in your life because it would be bad for your soul? It would actually demote you, deflate you in your relation to Jesus. And so you say no to it because it would hurt you. Or does God have to close those doors? When do you choose those doors? And when do you choose to shut them? So why do we have to be so devoted to Jesus anyway? What's all the fuss about anyway? I mean, why, you know, if, if we're going to worship somebody, he's got to be worthy of worship, right? Why, why, did, why Jesus? Like, what's so important about Jesus? What's so great about Jesus? Like, why, why, would you, why would you spend your time loving Jesus and being devoted to Jesus and adore Jesus? What's so, what's so amazing about him? What's all the fuss about? Well, Colossians says, Colossians says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on an earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you're, if you're worshiping yourself, your own choices, your own thoughts, your own life, if you're living a life for yourself, you are living for somebody who is so much less than Jesus. That Jesus is the one who created the universe. In fact, anything that can be known about God is Jesus. Because Jesus is the revelation of God. When God decided to make the universe and make all things that are known, it came out of his heart and into his thoughts and the thoughts created with the word and everything that exists came because of Jesus and is held together by Jesus and it is a reflection of Jesus. All things are held together by him and they are made for him and through him. Is there anything more amazing than that? Well, in Hebrews, he says, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That, that Jesus Christ is the one that God is speaking to you through. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the purity of God. He is the image of God. He is the one that through him, everything that was made is made by him. And it is the exact imprint of the nature of God is Jesus. And he holds all things together by the power of words. You know, your body is made up of cells. You know that? Yeah, and your cells are made up of atoms. You know that, right? You know what your atoms are made up of? Protons, neutrons, and electrons. You know the electron spins around the, the proton, zipping around? Do you know what makes that move? Nobody in science knows. There's no physics that explain why electrons move, and no nothing that explains why they keep moving. Do you know why they keep moving? Because Jesus is alive. And he is moving. And he is the battery of the universe. In, in, in the book of Revelation, there is this moment when all things are being summed up. And when everything has to be tidied up, it's tidied up in a scroll. It says the angel of the right hand was seated on the scroll. A scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one on heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. There is nobody that can tell both the beginning and the outcome of life. Nobody that can start time and end time. There is nobody else to open the scroll of your life. There's nobody that can open history and close it. There's no one. And everybody was sad, so they began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seas. seals. You see, Jesus Christ is the only one that can write the history he is the only one that can end the history. He is the only one whose life contains the history. He is the author of your life. He is the only one who can write it. And so, this point, these verses, these 
things come from. My Utmost for His Highest, a book by Oswald Chambers. He says, we all feel very much ashamed if we do not yield to Jesus the area of our lives he has asked us to yield to him. It's as if Paul was saying, my determined purpose is to be my utmost for his highest, my best for his glory. To reach that level of determination is a matter of the will, not of debate or reasoning. It is an absolute and irrevocable surrender of the will at that point. An undue amount of thought and consideration for ourselves is what keeps us from making that decision. And although we cover it up with pretense that it is others that we are considering, when we think seriously about what it will cost others if we obey the call of Jesus, we tell God that he doesn't know what our obedience will mean. <laughs> He's basically saying this. You, your soul, your fabric of your being knows that Jesus should have everything about you. And when you're not, you know it. And that, that conflict stirs within you. And there should be something in you saying, I just want to be, I want to be my best for him. I want to be the most for him. I want to, I want to be, I want to be good for him. I want to, I want to do good work for him. I want to try for him. I want to be most for him. I want to do that. And when you feel that, the decision to be that is a choice of the will. It's not about can. It's the will. And we say, oh, but it's because of this person and that reason and that and that, that's why that's why I don't do it because it's gonna and he's like, and we say to God, God, you don't understand how much I will have to suffer if I do that. <laughs> yeah. Keep to the point. He does know. <laughs> and shut out every other thought and keep yourself before God in this one thing only, my utmost for his highest. I am determined to be absolutely entirely for him. And him alone. Echoing Peter's statement. Therefore, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you know the person who wrote that? Peter. You know what Peter is famous for? Peter's famous for rebuking Jesus when Jesus said he had to suffer to do the will of God. Peter is the one, when Jesus said, I'm going to have to go to the cross, I'm going to have to suffer and die, I'm going to have to be tormented and tortured, I'm going to have to suffer. And Peter said, no, Lord, that'll never happen to you. And Peter got this rebuke. Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in your mind the things of God, but the thoughts of men. See, that's what the thoughts of men are to stop suffering in us. But what God is saying is, no, 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 no. Arm your way thinking this. If you have to suffer to let go of the things of this world, that's good for you. If you have to suffer to say no to yourself and your own desires, that's good for you. Because what will it profit? Think about this. What will it profit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Then you'll be like the bride knocking on the virgin on the door saying, uh, I thought you were important, just not important enough to get here on time. What's the Lord saying to you right now? 
What's the thing that challenges that in you? What is the thing that's really hard for you to say no to? We're going to pray. We're going to spend a time in reflecting and worship. But I really want to challenge us today to think, is Jesus the most important person to you? And if he is, are you giving him the devotion that he deserves? Father, we pray that today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive not just the knowledge of the truth and the revelation of the truth that you're trying to have us, but you would also give to us, by the power of your Spirit, the grace to respond to you and the power by which we can live a life of service to Jesus. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction on our hearts, each one of us, that we would feel convicted of the areas of our life that we say no to you and where we live a life that is more focused on our desires, pleasing others or pleasing ourselves, and that you would give us the courage to stand against that and to accept the suffering that comes from it. Lord, I pray for a spiritual release for people today who are being bombarded by other thoughts and other pressures, other temptations. Lord, I pray that you would set them free. And Lord, that you would give us the truth, the truth that sets us free. And that you would help us to take Jesus Christ and elevate him to that place of pure devotion, of single worship, where it's only about him, giving ourselves to him, worshiping him, loving him, serving him, and living lives that are for his glory, not ours. Do you feel a challenge in your, in your heart, in your spirit, there's something in you that you know that Jesus is saying, that's, you know, that's about you, that's not about me. Are you living for your own desires? Are you following your own ways? Are you making compromises? Then once you respond to Jesus, who's at the door, standing there knocking, saying, let me come in. He's rattling the cage, the, the lock. He's saying... Let me in. I want to be with you. I want to show you who I truly am so that you can love me and so you can have my love. Just let that door open in your heart. Let him come in. Jesus, I welcome you. Jesus, come into my most intimate places of my heart and my life. Come in, heal me, help me, and light up my life in a way that shows me it shows others your beauty, your goodness, your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be fully devoted to you in every way. And Jesus, that you would move by the power of your spirit to enable a life of worship in each one of us. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus.